Well, I'm with Zach. It's always good to hear about the living water. <laughs> living water. Living water. In fact, water, if you just think in a, in a natural, physical um, sense, uh, water to a, to a thirsty person. Refreshing, right? Satisfying. Well, true as well in the spiritual sense. To the thirsty soul, living water quenches the thirst. It refreshes. It gives life, sustenance to the soul. So, always good to hear about the living water. So we are. We're going to talk about that uh, somewhat, uh, uh, to some degree, again this morning, as we did back in chapter 4, because Jesus is talking about it again here. Uh, once again, addressing those who are thirsty. And this uh, is indeed targeted to that specific group. We'll probably come back to that momentarily, um, to the thirsty. Let me, let me do a couple of things here to kind of set the context. Um, first of all, this is, this is happening, John tells us, at the, the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, one of the uh, uh, Old Testament feast uh, under the uh, under the Mosaic law and I want to I want to give you a description because the, the setting here is important um, Jesus is not just pulling these these metaphors and these analogies out of out of nowhere uh, and so the context is important so I want to read you a description here and it's it's brief um, just concerning the feast uh, and, and then the, uh, the water-pouring rite that goes on. And let me just say first that the feast itself is, is where the children of Israel would be gathered to Jerusalem, and it's, called the, uh, and it's an annual feast. And it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. We, we would say tents or booths, literally is the word, the Feast of Booths, because they would, they would come from all over Israel and they would gather in Jerusalem and they would dwell in these little booths that they had erected for this seven-day um, period, seventh-day feast. And on the eighth day, they would take the booths down and, and there would be a big celebration and, and uh, also a special Sabbath uh, on the eighth day. And they, they would take the booths down and, and prepare to return home. And even people living in Jerusalem would often um, make these little booths on their, on their roof, rooftops, they had flat roofs, or out in their yard. And they would... During the during the period of the feast, they would live in the little the little booths. Um, so it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and the, the idea kind of was coming and and dwelling in the, there uh, in Jerusalem in the presence of the temple. So the idea is kind of coming and dwelling in the uh, in the presence of of God uh, in the glory of God. So a seven day feast where they carried out certain rituals. Now I'm going to tell you about one of those now because it's it's pertinent to what we're talking about today and what Jesus is, is talking about here, and that is the, the water-pouring rite. And this is one of the rites, R-I-T-E, one of the rites, ceremonies that they would um, observe during the Feast of Booths. Now I'm going to read you this uh, description here. In fact, I've got a couple of them, but this one is, the first one is from D.A. Carson in his commentary on the book of John, and here's his description. On the seven days of the feast, a golden flagon, or picture, you know, like a water picture, a, a golden flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in procession, led by the high priest, back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate, on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the shofar, a trumpet connected with joyful occasions, were sounded. While the pilgrims watched, the priest processed around the altar with the flagon, the temple choir singing the Hallel. The Hallel is um, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. You know, we've mentioned several times before um, in the uh, Old, Old Testament, the Jewish worship, uh, as far as I know, uh, many of them, they still do this today, at least the Orthodox. But in the Old Testament worship, they would sing the psalms. The psalms are songs, and they would sing them. So they, different occasions, they would, uh, they would sing different songs. Different uh, psalms were created for different purposes. And uh, here he's referring to the Hallel, which again is, 
is uh, Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. So you've got the temple choir singing Psalm 113 through 118 while, while the priest is in procession around the altar with the golden pitcher of water. And then Carson goes on to say, um, when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim, that's just simply every man that came there to worship, every male pilgrim shook a, uh, a willow and myrtle twigs tied with palm in his right hand while his left raised a, a, a piece of citrus fruit, a sign of the ingathered harvest, and that's what they're celebrating, by the way. Uh, so he's got the palm branch in his right hand and, and, a, and a piece of citrus in his left hand and cried, Give thanks to the Lord three times. So they would, all the men would shout that out three times. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. And repetition, by the way, is a, was a, a big thing in, uh, in Hebrew worship. And there's good reason for that because it, it, it's a way to, to remember. It's why they would sing these song, psalms rather uh, ceremonially because they sing them over and over and over. And what are you doing in the process? You're me- literally memorizing Scripture. You're getting it in your head. And then uh, they would cry out um, chants of praise such as this or, or like Psalm 118, you know, give thanks to the Lord for His mercy endures forever. So here they're saying, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And then Carson continues, the water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice along with the daily drink offering of wine. The wine and the water were poured into their respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. So it's an offering to the Lord. Moreover, these ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were related to the Jewish thought, uh, both to, the, to Jewish thought, both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and, and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. So what Carson is saying, you know, they would go through these rites and the, the water that was carried from the Pool of Siloam to the, to the uh, altar in the procession as the priest would hold it up and then he would pour it out before the Lord. In Jewish thought, it was, it was thought to symbolize the water provided to the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness uh, when they were going through the wilderness wanderings. And, and it was also thought to symbolize the Messianic age. It was looking forward to the pour, pouring out of the Spirit of God, which, for example... Um, the prophet Joel speaks of in Joel chapter 2, and Peter um, speaks about in Acts chapter 2 and says this is, uh, is being fulfilled. So they thought of it as looking, to, looking back to the water God provided and looking forward to the Messianic age and the pouring out of the Spirit. So um, he goes on to say here, pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles refers symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. So that's, that's what's being symbolized there. One more description. This one's shorter. And this is coming from uh, uh, Marvin Vincent, uh, another uh, Greek scholar and co- commentator. He says, Every morning after the sacrifice, the people led, and that's during the seven-day feast, Every morning after the sacrifice, the people led by a priest repaired to the, the fountain of Siloam where the priest filled a golden pitcher and brought it back to the temple amid music and joyful shouts. Advancing to the altar of burnt offering at the cry of the people, Lift up thy hand. He emptied the pitcher toward the west and toward the east a cup of wine while the people chanted with joy, quote, with joy, shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. You ought to recognize that because David read it just a moment ago out of Isaiah chapter uh, 12. So they would chant that as well. With joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. All right, so this is a major part of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This was a, a, a rite, a ritual that they carried out for seven days straight. And it's in the midst of that that we have uh, the text before us today, the, the, uh, the discourse by Jesus that's recorded here today. Now, 
in verse 37. John tells us it's on the last day. One more just kind of contextual note here. Um, John says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Well, well let me say this. It's, it's difficult to know whether that's the seventh or the eighth day. Uh, and I'm just pointing this out, FYI, for your information, because ultimately it doesn't matter. But, but um, uh, just an interesting note. Um, the feast was seven days long. You can go back in the Old Testament and read about the feast. It was, it was a seven-day feast. So you think, well then, okay, the last day is the seventh day, right? It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. But they had, um, on, on the eighth day, they were, the, the Lord had uh, instructed them to have a, 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 a great convocation, a gathering, and, and a, a special Sabbath day. So it was related. The feast was officially over, but it was related. The, eight, the eighth-day celebration was related to it, kind of a... a the, as the end of it and the winding down, like I say, they're taking the booths down and it's a special Sabbath and it's, a, a, again, a day of celebration. So um, it's, it's difficult to know if John is meaning the seventh day or the eighth day. If it's on the seventh day, then probably what, what's happening here, because he says here, he stood, Jesus stood and cried out. So kind of the, the picture there would be him, him standing up in the midst of all the people observing what we've just described um, in, in reading the quotes from uh, D.A. Carson and Marvin Vincent. That is, he's, he, he with all the crowd is witnessing this procession. They go get the water, bring it up to the temple, pour it out to the Lord, and all of the celebration and shouting and praise to the Lord. And so in the midst of that, Jesus cries out, Or... If it's on the eighth day, then, of course, that is not happening, and there's just relative uh, silence. But in the midst of that, Jesus stands and cries out. And, and the verb here for cry out um, is, is, is just that. In other words, he's shouting out loud. He cries out, like you could say, cries out with a loud voice. And here's what he says in verse 37 and 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now again, a couple of things. We've got, a, we've got an ongoing theme here. John's, John's main theme is the identity of Christ, right? John, again, our, our uh, key verse here, chapter 20, verse 30, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So it's kind of a threefold um, goal there. I mean, Christ's identity, He's the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John says. I mean, this is an ongoing theme. And then, and then along with that, John's theme is... I'm telling you these things so that you may believe. I want you to believe that He's the Christ, the Son of God. I want you to believe into Him in a, in a saving way, in a trusting way. Trusting in Him as the Christ, the Son of God. And then, thirdly, so that in Him you may have life. So those themes are throughout the book. Believing on Christ. John just uses that repeatedly. And, and Jesus in the discourses that John records for us uses that verb repeatedly. Believe. Believe. Or, or talks about the believing ones like he does here. Those who believe. The believing ones. So that you may have life. So he's talking about believing in Him concerning who He really is, His true identity, and believing so that you may have life. So, have that in mind here as you picture in your head Jesus standing up and crying out with a loud voice, whoever believes in me, that is the believing one, those who believe in me, will have life. They'll, they'll have living water. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Now, also, think about the context that we just set up. They're pouring the, picture, the, the priests are pouring 
bringing the water in procession, pouring it out at the altar. It pictures God's provision, looking back. God's provision for the thirsty Israelites and the children of Israel in the, in the, uh, the, for the children of Israel in the wilderness. It pictures that. And then it looks ahead to the messianic age, when God sends His anointed one. And so Jesus says, again, with those things in view, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me a drink. Now, that ought to kind of ring bells with us because remember when he was uh, talking about the manna back in chapter 6, they, they said, you know, Moses gave us the manna from heaven and Jesus said, Moses didn't give you the manna. My Father is giving you the manna, the true bread from heaven, the living bread, the bread of God, talking about Himself. So He's looking back, saying about the manna, that just pictured me. I'm the true bread from heaven. Now, similarly, there's, that's what's going on here. Looking back at God's provision of water in the wilderness, Jesus is saying, I'm the true water. I'm the true provision. If any man thirsts, let him come to me. And whoever believes, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living Water, And again, uh, similar language to what he uses with the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well back in chapter 4. When he says to her, um, I would have given you to ask me for a drink, I would have given you living water. So he's saying, I, I'm, I'm the true water. Those things just picture me. So once again, he's, he's revealing something about his true identity as the one who fulfills all of the, um, all of the Old Testament um, types and shadows. Now, just a few things quickly here. First of all, this is an invitation to the thirsty. It's an invitation to the thirsty. The, the good news of the gospel is always good news for those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, right? Good news for those who realize they're in need. Not necessarily good news for everybody. Everybody doesn't see it as good news. But for those who know their need and who are looking for real help in terms of salvation, it's good news. So this is an invitation to the thirsty. Anyone may come but it is anyone who thirsts. If anyone thirsts, that's the qualifier. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Now, I want us to think about something for a minute. I, I get, I get uh, um, troubled all the, all the time, you know, when you just, you, you're going through life and, and, and you look around, it's kind of like... Um, for us, you know, for people who know the Lord, and, and, I, and, and let me just say up front, don't, don't misunderstand me. It's not that we're sinless. Don't misunderstand me. We got, we got, we're, our, our, we're full of, uh, you know, dealing with problems ourselves. But, walking through this world with Christ is just totally different than moving through this world without Christ. Or, you, you, you could even say, because the, as I said, the church is not unaffected. So you, you could even say walking through this world um, with Christ or at least professing the knowledge of Christ and yet getting sidetracked, distracted, is a terrible thing. So, you know, as I move through and I talk with people and see different situations and it's kind of like um, a Christian being in the world, it's, it's like Lot in... Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You, you, a Christian in the world today, you, you, you are affected. You say, well, I'm, I'm saved, you know, I don't have those problems anymore. No, we're, we're still affected by what goes on around us. So when tragedies happen, for example, you're, it hurts, you're sad about it. You know, people get blown up at a Boston Marathon and it's troubling. 
are um, people dealing with hurts, issues, sickness, whatever it is, it, it's troubling. So, for example, you know, I think about these things, and, and especially in relation to what we're, we're talking about here. What is it, and you can think about this with me, but what is it that causes a person to abuse alcohol and drugs? And I'm going to give you a few scenarios here, but just, just kind of walk through this with me. What is it that, why do people do that? Why do people abuse alcohol and drugs? Why do people commit adultery or fornication? You know, fornication is kind of an all-inclusive. Uh, adultery, of course, would relate to um, someone who's married having sex outside of marriage with someone other than their marriage partner. But the term fornication just takes it all in. It's just the idea of, of sex outside of the context of marriage, period. So, so it not only refers to somebody committing adultery, but someone who's, who's, um, who's having sex before marriage or, or outside of marriage. Like the, like the woman at the well. Jesus said, go call your husband. And she said, I've got, uh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, that's right, you've had five husbands, but the man you now have is not your husband. That's fornication. Why do people do that? Why do, why do people view or read porn? And by the way, that's um, where that term comes from. Porneo, the Greek term, where we get our word uh, pornography. Why do people view that? Why do people read it? I mean, you know, it's, it's astounding. Usually when you think about uh, viewing it, and, and I would say that the, from what I've heard on the statistics, um, far more so with, with, with men than women in terms of viewing, like Internet, pornography, things like that. But um, we now have, on the other side, in, in the case with women, literary, and it's not that they don't engage in the other at all, but it's just the numbers are off, but unequal. But literary pornography like this, uh, what is it, Fifty Shades of whatever it is, you know, this, this series that's so popular now. Pornography. It's not pictures. It's, it's in literary form. But my understanding is it's very explicit and pornographic. What causes a person to, to involve himself, in, either in the, with the pictures or with the literary form? Why would somebody go there? What makes a workaholic? We already talked about drugs and alcohol. What, why would somebody just overdo it with work? And I'm talking about extreme. Working is good. But I'm talking about extreme cases here where it becomes their whole life. <clears throat> or why do people love money? It's the love of money, Scripture tells us, that is the root of all kinds of evil. Why is that a problem? Why do people overeat? Why do people get depressed? Why do people watch too much television or movies or DVDs or whatever it is? Well, I'm going to suggest this to you. You know, you, you, you hear those categories I just gave you, like alcohol and drug abuse, committing adultery or, or viewing pornography, um, overeating, depression, watching television, and you're thinking, those don't exactly all go together. <laughs> Are you telling me it's just as bad to overeat as it is, say, to view pornography? No. No, and I, I, wouldn't, I would not equate those things. But I would say this. There's a principle operating behind them. That is the same. There's, there's a principle that, that drives an alcoholic that also drives a couch potato. You know, somebody that wants to come home and say, you know, leave me alone, I'm going to watch TV for five hours and don't mess with me. <laughs> I wouldn't equate the two in terms of how bad one is, but I would say, bottom line, 
they've got a common denominator. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to phrase it this way. They're, they're, they're looking for satisfaction. They're trying to satisfy sensual desires. Sometimes it's, 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 it's as um, subtle as just looking for comfort. It can, it can be something that you, you would just wouldn't think was bad at all. You know, it's just, just, just seeking comfort, maybe security, something like that. So I would say seeking satisfaction, that's at the root of all of those things and more. I mean, I, I gave you a list of categories, but it's not by any means exhaustive. So you could add a lot of other things. You could lump a lot of other things in there. Sometimes I get opportunity. In fact, I had uh, a friend call me yesterday and ask if I would be willing to go to a, um, to a uh, Celebrate Recovery meeting and give my uh, testimony. So sometimes I get opportunity to, to give my testimony. One thing I try to make clear, and, and, if, I, and if I get to go do this, y'all can pray that I will be successful in doing this. One thing I, I try to make clear, it's, it's not the... It's not, what's important is not the circumstance you came out of. Because you know what, what we tend to do is, uh, is we think the, the circumstances are they all, in, that's what excites us. You know, if you, I mean, if you go, you go hear a guy that, and this ain't me, but, but you go hear a guy give his testimony and he says, you know, I was a hell's angel. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I did drugs for 29 years and, you know, beat up uh, 30 of my wives and, and uh, did this and that and, and, and then I came to Christ. And everybody just goes, wow, man. That's awesome. And that is awesome, according. It is awesome. But you hear another guy that says, um, well, you know, I really don't ever remember a time that I wasn't serving the Lord. I was, I was saved at a very young age. And all through junior high and high school, my focus was on doing God's will. And then I left there and went to Bible college and seminary. And I went, went to the mission field and I... And somehow we hear that and we don't get as, as excited about it as the ex-Hells Angels. And I did know a guy, by the way, that was... Uh, I, work, I used to work with a guy that was a, a, a former bandito, which is similar to the Hells Angels. And he was gloriously saved, and I enjoyed being around him. <laughs> it, was, it was a treat. But, uh, but somehow, you know, we look at the circumstances and think, wow, boy, this, this testimony is awesome, and this one... Yeah, this one's okay. Yeah, this is good. I'm glad that guy's safe. The truth is they're both awesome. So what I try to do is, is make the point that it's, it's not just circumstances. Here, here's the deal. Here's something we all have in common. You know, the, the ex-bandito and, uh, you know, the ex-little kid who was saved at a young age but still was once lost. One thing we all have in common is this, that we did live for self. And that's what life was all about. Now, it, it, that manifests in different ways. So, so some people, in pursuit of seeking self-satisfaction, some people get all up into drugs, alcohol, pornography, adultery, whatever it is. And some people, just, just from the looks at them, it's like they got it all together. They're, they're, they're perfectly, uh, from our standpoint anyway, they're, they're perfectly moral upright, and married, got three kids or whatever. But it's manifesting differently in them, that's all. I mean, if they're lost, they're still living for self. It may play out a different way. You know, maybe they don't treat their wife and children right because everything's about me and I want, I want things my way and I want you all to your world to revolve, revolve around me. My world revolves around me and that's why I want you to think also. Or maybe they're all caught up in career or something like that. But the bottom line is, life is all about me. It's all about self. Now, that's what we need to be delivered from. If we get delivered from that, it'll take care of the symptoms. If I get, if I get delivered from that slavery to seeking self-satisfaction, then I won't do drugs anymore. I won't watch pornography anymore. I won't be a workaholic, you know, going to the extreme, neglecting my family. 
however it manifests in the form of symptoms, that stuff will go away if I get the root problem taken care of. So people are looking for satisfaction. Now that's, that's everybody. You can say it another way. I mean, this, this will sound a little bit funny, a little bit flippant, but, but it's true nonetheless. Um, everybody's looking to be happy. That's what everybody wants. And so it just manifests in different ways. They pursue happiness in different ways. And I'm using that as kind of a synonym for satisfaction. I like the term satisfaction, but, but they, they both work. Everybody wants to be happy, and they'll do whatever it takes, basically, to get there. They just take different roads. They see different things as, you know, this is what will make me happy. And while somebody else looks over here and says, no, this is what will make me happy. But they're all looking to be happy or to be satisfied. I've talked to people who come to the conclusion that nothing basically here is going to do it. And so for them, the final option is suicide. But as strange as it may sound, they've got the same motive. They're, they're thinking that this is what it's going to take. I, I, I need some relief. I want to be happy. So this is what it's going to be. This, this is what it's going to take. I'm going to have to kill myself. Well, that's absurd, but in their mind, that's what it's going to take. And they're pursuing happiness or satisfaction. Now, with all that in mind, you, you might be thinking, and this is why I want to make this distinction, because you might be thinking, okay, so then everybody's thirsty. Everybody's thirsty. Well, in one sense, yes, like in, in the sense that I just described, that's true. Everybody is. Everybody's, everybody's thirsting, and they're all looking, searching. You know, we use that terminology a lot of times. Seeking. Everybody's seeking. Well, in one sense, that is certainly true, in the sense that I just, that I just described. But here's the distinction I want to make. Jesus is not speaking that broadly. Even though he just says it, you know, anyone who thirsts, he's got a particular thirst in mind. He's, he's talking about a spiritual thirst. And he knows, there he is, crying out to the crowd, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me. But he knows a lot of them aren't thirsty. See, they're finding satisfaction in other things. And they're not thinking spiritually at all. Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to you, you'd have asked me for drink. So you've you got you to gotta be after a specific thing. You've got to understand God's gift. He said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again or born from above, he cannot see, he can't perceive the kingdom of God. And why is he saying that to Nicodemus? Because, because he knows Nicodemus isn't understanding, he's not perceiving, he's not seeing. And Jesus is saying, you're the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand because you've not been born again. So he's talking about a, a particular kind of thirst, spiritual thirst. I think you have it the same thing described in Matthew 5, 6, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled, right? Filled, filled up. That's like going to Golden Corral and, and the guy standing at the door and saying, Boy, happy are you, which, which is what blessed means, by the way, the Greek word there. Happy are you if you came hungry today because we got this bar <laughs> and, and you can leave here filled up. So that's what Jesus is saying. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
because they'll be filled. Now, I, I think, I'm, I'm giving you that, Matthew 5, 6, because I, I, I think that's a parallel for this. That's what Jesus had in view here. When He says, anyone who thirsts, He doesn't just mean anyone who thirsts after anything. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you want something real, if you want not water from the pool of Siloam or water from Jacob's well, or even water from a rock in a wilderness provided by God, if you want living water, then Jesus is saying, come to Me and drink. Drink. Whoever believes in Me, that is the believing ones, those who believe, the Scripture has said, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, there's no particular Scripture um, that, that says precisely that. Jesus is, of course, referring to the Old Testament. Um, but there's no passage that you can go to that says that. Um, probably he either has um, something uh, in view that suggests that, and there are several. Um, Isaiah 55:1, for example, "Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without honey, without price." Um, I don't have time to go to all of them. I can give you several more, um, but there there are several that suggest that. Or perhaps he's got in view, like he does back in chapter 5, perhaps he's got in view the whole Old Testament and basically saying this is the thrust of it, that anyone who believes will receive and out of his belly will flow rivers. Belly, belly just meaning his innermost being. Some translations as the ESV say heart. Out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Um, and there are places, by the way, we did, back in chapter 6, we talked about Jesus being the bread of God. There are passages that, that correct, or connect rather all three of these things, the bread, the water, and the giving of the Spirit. For example, Nehemiah 9.15 and, and then uh, verses 19 through 20. Nehemiah 9.19 through 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So there are passages that connect these, these metaphors, bread, water, and, and then um, even the giving of the Spirit of God. So it may be that Jesus just has all that in view, but now He's saying the fulfillment of it is here. And it's Me. So there's the invitation. The invitation to those who thirst. Now I've got to go through the rest of this quickly for the sake of time. But it's kind of a restatement of what we've already seen earlier on anyway. There are varying opinions in response. So you've got the invitation. Now you've got the response of the people. Verse 40. When they heard these things... Oh, and by the way, I should just mention, I, I kept mentioning the Spirit, but John does clearly say that uh, Jesus is talking about the giving of the Spirit. Verse, verse uh, 39, This He said about the Spirit, when He said, Come unto Me and drink. This He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, verse 40, their response to these things. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, which Jesus fulfilled both of those things, but they're, they're ignorant, apparently, of those facts. The village where David was, verse 43. So there was a division, literally a schism. There was a schism among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but... No one laid hands on him. So there, there again is this, these divided opinions about Jesus. And we saw that um, back, same thing back in verse, um, verse 12. There was much muttering among the people about him. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. So the same thing here. Some actually say he's the Christ. And others are saying, well, he needs to be arrested. <laughs> And then the authorities come into play in verse 45. The officers came to the chief priest. Uh, 
the officers who were sent to arrest him, and that's, uh, that's mentioned earlier on, um, back in verse 32. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why do you not bring him? So the officers, that is the, the temple police, are sent to arrest Jesus. They come back without him, and the officials there, the chief priests and the Pharisees, say, Why did you not bring him? That is, why did you not arrest him? And their response in verse 46 is, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees then uh, answer them, Have you also been deceived? Verse 48, Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, that is, he was one of the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So he's kind of taking up for Jesus here, putting in a word for him, uh, because he thinks they're, they're, they're judging too, too quickly without considering everything. And they reply in verse 52, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, which is actually not true. Um, but they are um, determined to reject him and condemn him. Now, just, just a, a couple of things for application. To drink is to believe. Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. To drink is to believe. In fact, um, that verse can actually be translated this way. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. To drink is to believe. So all, all of these analogies and metaphors may sound a little strange. You know, back in chapter 6, we got Jesus saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And here, if any man thirsts, he doesn't say, come and I will give you a drink, and, you know, as though I'm going to pour you some good water or I'm going to pour you some good wine, you know, like he does uh, at the, at, at the uh, marriage in Cana of Galilee. But he says, he's saying, drink from me. Come and drink from me. The idea is I'm the living water. So to drink is to believe. That's what he's talking about. Believing on Him. In a, in a saving sense, in a trusting sense. That is, trusting that He is who He says He is. The Christ, the Son of God. Now you see the, the confusion in the people. And that's what He doesn't want us to settle for. Those kinds of... Um, undecided opinions. That's why John says he's writing, so that we may know that he's the Christ and so that we may believe and in him have eternal life. So he doesn't want us undecided about who Jesus is. He doesn't want us having false ideas about who Jesus is. Remember, they were going to come and make him a king because they, they had their own expectations, their own ideas about what the Messiah should be and what the Messiah should do. He's talking about coming to Him on His own terms. He doesn't want us trusting in religion. Boy, you see that, especially in the chief priests and Pharisees. And by the way, it's interesting that the, the temple police are made up of Levites. And of course, you know, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, we do know that, that many of the, of the leaders uh, wound up believing later, but, but we don't know who. We don't know which ones. And did any of these here? We, we don't know. But they were certainly shaken, weren't they, by what they heard? I mean, you, you hear the word temple police. I mean, you, you probably you get a I'd picture in your head of a guy with a gun and a badge, but that's not what these were. They were Levites, priests, but um, entrusted with 
special authority. And so these aren't guys that are used to going out and clubbing somebody and throwing handcuffs on them. And, you know, they, they take care of religious matters. And so they're sent out to bring Jesus in for interrogation, but they hear him speak, and they're thinking, nobody ever talked like this before. So maybe, maybe they're on the verge. We don't, we don't know. Nicodemus surely seems like he's on the verge of believing. Seems to me that he does. That, that becomes even clearer later on after the death of Christ when Nicodemus goes and takes care of his body. I mean, there seems to be more than just a, some kind of fascination with him. He, he seems to be a genuine believer. But do you see that that's, that's what the invitation is calling for? It's calling for decision? In other words, don't, don't just stand back and, and, and admire the water. Say, oh, it looks good. He's a, he's a good man. Perhaps he's the Christ. Or maybe he's the prophet. Don't just, don't just stand back and marvel. Nobody ever spoke like this before. Jesus is awesome. But Jesus is saying, don't don't be satisfied with that. Don't stop at that. Come, come and drink. I mean, the question is, are are you thirsty? Do you really really have a spiritual thirst? Are you looking for salvation? Do you understand that there's there's nothing in this life that's going to ultimately satisfy you? And do you understand that if you find things to be satisfying here and now, that that's actually a problem? Because there's, there's, a, there's a, an issue deep within us all. Sin that must be dealt with. There's a, there's a death that can only be conquered by the living water. There's no other source. And that's, that, that again is behind what Jesus is saying. There's no other source. There's no other place you can go. The bread that you got in the wilderness did not have a lasting effect. The water you got in the wilderness did not have a lasting effect. It sustains you for a little while. Then it's gone and you die. The pleasures of sin for a season only help to carry you on to destruction. If you find them satisfying, then that's truly a problem. So Jesus is saying, do you thirst? And if you thirst, that is, if you thirst, for righteousness, right standing with God, redemption. Remember Anna in the temple when they brought Jesus as a baby to the temple and Anna saw Jesus and she began to speak about Him to everyone who waited for redemption in Jerusalem. That's the kind of thirst Jesus is talking about. Do you thirst for redemption? Does something in your soul long for right relationship with God? Do you want to be holy? Do you feel? Do you feel the imperative? Be ye holy, for I am holy. Does your soul cry out because of? the devastating effects of sin? Do you long to be free from its slavery and from the slavery of the fear of death? That's the kind of longing that Jesus is talking about. That's the kind of thirst. That's the kind of hunger. And He's saying it can be satisfied. You don't have to take a trip on drugs or alcohol. You don't have to settle for the temporal satisfaction that things like sexual 
immorality bring? You don't have to settle for whatever it is that you get out of your career or your money or any other thing that you might be in pursuit of. Do you long for redemption? Do you hunger for righteousness and holiness? Then Jesus says, come, come, come and drink. There's a fountain that is flowing. It doesn't run dry. And everyone who thirsts is welcome to come. And the supply is everlasting. It's not going to run out. And it's not going to lose its effect. Come and drink. Come and drink. Come and drink. What did Isaiah say? We heard it earlier. Isaiah 12.3 With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Come and drink. Come and drink. Would you stand? My prayer this morning and desire and hope, truly, if there's anyone in this room who does not know Jesus in a saving way, I mean really know Him, that you will consider these things and understand that Jesus is the only source of true life and eternal life. And also for those of us who do know Him, and perhaps, you know, maybe that's everybody in the room. But even if not, at least those of us who do know Him, that we would not be distracted, that we would not be sidetracked, that we would not be looking for satisfaction outside of Christ. The only real joy Happiness, satisfaction is found in Him. So let us drink. Let us drink. Let us drink with joy from the well of salvation. Christ, the true rock who gives the true living water. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word and for this precious promise and invitation for all who thirst to come to Jesus and drink. And Lord, we know that You're faithful. You're faithful to fulfill Your promises. Your promise of salvation to all who come seeking. And Lord, I do pray that You give all of us the wisdom, the passion, to come, to drink continually and not to look for satisfaction, pleasure, ultimately, in an ultimate sense, in anything else apart from Christ. Lord, may we drink with joy from the wells of salvation. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.